Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined again by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in California. Rob, how are you doing today? Larry, I'm amazing today. And I got to tell you, people know that we record the show on Wednesday and, uh, and drop it on Sunday, but today it's, it's kind of, we have to stay topical of what happened today, and it's one of the biggest days uh, announcement-wise, and I can think of in recent memory for cannabis, which we'll get into in a few minutes, and we've got the absolute perfect guest to discuss it with us. But um, but I am terrific, and I'm really excited to dig into what's happening in Canvas today. Yes, as am I. Uh, stay tuned, please. We have Chris Walsh, the CEO of MJ Biz, one of the best-known groups out there supporting marijuana, and their conferences are the ones that everyone go to every year. If you can only go to one, that's the one you go to. But we are not going to forget about the Grateful Dead today because that's part of our show, too. And uh, we've kind of digged deep in the vault, if you will, and came out with a show from uh, – 52 years ago today uh, from the legendary Matrix uh, Theater in San Francisco, California. It's not a Grateful Dead show. It it is kind of, but it's one of these Mickey and the Heartbeats shows. Uh, We'll get more into that later, but uh, it's it's uh, a show of rare tunes, fun tunes, and uh, some great stuff that we're going to talk about uh, after we dive into the marijuana. But Dan, if you just kick us off with the first tune of the day called I Know It's a Sin, it's not a Grateful Dead tune, but Jerry kills it. Rob, Jerry's always a blues player, and, and even back in the day when he wanted to really let loose with it, he sure shows he has the chops. Yeah, and that's such a rare one. You know, that, that Matrix show, as you said, is unlike almost any other Grateful Dead show, because it's not a Grateful Dead show, but it's certainly one that uh, has been out there with some really, really um, interesting improvisational like attempts at, uh, at some songs that they either only covered a couple times or never really played much after that at all. So I'm excited to get into that one uh, in a little bit, but... Should we talk some weed first? Yeah, let's do that, please. Um, you know, there's there's definitely days when we have a tremendous musical guests on, and and maybe we give the uh, marijuana side of the show just a little bit of lip service because it is in the title, and we don't want to ignore it. But today is historical. You guys know that Rob and I will always give our opinions on what's going on, and when sometimes people want to make a big splash about something and it's not, we'll say it's not, but. Uh, I'm going to let Rob kind of lead in on this, and then we'll use that as an introduction into our guest, Chris Walsh. Rob, tell everybody uh, who hasn't heard yet what happened today, or uh, when you guys hear this show just happened uh, last week. Well, the announcement came out a couple uh, hours ago from the White House, and it's already you know, swept across the country. It's all over the Twitter sphere right now. It's all over you know, every major publication that covers cannabis. But um, President Joe Biden just made an announcement that all federal criminals will be pardoned, which is 6,500 federal inmates right now. They'll be pardoned for you know nonviolent cannabis offenses. 
which you know doesn't sound like that huge a deal, but along with that, he also made the announcement that he wants all the governors of each of the individual states to take a look at doing the same thing. And he also wants to make sure that um, he is uh, asking Merrick Garland to really take a look at whether or not the scheduling of cannabis as a Schedule One drug is appropriate based on where we are as a country, where we are sentiment-wise uh, across the country. So if you think about it from the perspective of what does this mean, and we'll get into this in, in just a much more detailed conversation here, the, the overarching theme here is, is this the first step towards federal legalization? Because you can't legalize something and still keep people incarcerated for that same offense. So letting people out, expunging records, and, and saying you're no longer considered a criminal for this offense is it, step one prior to legalization. And for that reason, you know, if you watch the, uh, the public markets today for, for cannabis uh, companies, every single one of them popped on the news instantaneously, you know, between 25 and 35% gains uh, in the public markets for cannabis stocks. So that says to me that Wall Street takes this seriously, the retail investor takes this seriously. You know, we're going to know in the next couple of days whether this was, you know, sort of a, a dead cat bounce or whether or not, you know, people really believe this means something. With all the news we're hearing about safe passing during the lame duck session, this is, you know, step one of a major announcement that I think we're going to see more steps of. But before I get too excited about it, uh, perhaps we should uh, introduce our guest to our audience. Uh, if you don't mind me taking the rein here, as Chris and I have known each other for a long time, uh, I'd love to introduce Chris Walsh, the CEO of MJ Business Daily. Chris has had his finger on the pulse of this industry for the last uh, 12 years or so. He has um, stayed at the top of this publication since it first came out. He was instrumental in opening up the first uh, cannabis uh, conferences long before our producer, Dan Humiston, was doing so as well. But um, as a, a media company, as a publishing company, as a, an events company, MJ Biz has been the de facto uh, go-to resource for all things cannabis now for greater than a decade. So it's uh, with great pleasure that I welcome Chris Walsh, CEO of uh, MJ Business Daily, to our show. Hey, thanks for the uh, introduction. That was very nice. Well, it's great to have you. So let's jump right in, man. Are we are we totally off base? Is this, is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? I'm guessing your phone's blowing up right now. Yeah, I mean, ever since this came out, uh, things have been hectic and crazy. And you know, you're trying to make sense of it too yourself uh, before you speak about it and and make sure that you understand fully what it is and where your head's at. At first, I, I was kind of, uh, I took a step back and said, okay, what does this mean? You mentioned before that you guys on this show try and give you the straight scoop. I do too. And a lot of times when something happens at a federal level, there's headlines and there's emails and there, you know, Twitter's erupting and you're like, yeah, it's it's not that big of a deal, right? It, it's it's something, but it's not like legalization just happened. And, and, you know, one side of Congress passes a bill and everyone seems to think, oh, it's passed, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, but the Senate still has to pass it and that's not going to happen. Uh, or it moves out of a committee and everyone celebrates, right? So a lot of change we've seen has been incremental. It all adds up to a bigger picture of moving towards some type of significant rep reform. I would say when you look at the spectrum of these types of developments coming out of Washington, again, whether it's a bill coming out of co committee, whether it's Schumer introducing something, this is probably one of the most significant that we've seen. Uh, and, you know, the and the reasoning is you've got a sitting president <laughs> who has unequivocally saying the laws need to change. And I'm going to do what I can through an executive order to start changing these laws. No one has come close to doing that. We've had people leave office in high positions and then say, yeah, I think things should change. So uh, I, you know, I was pr pretty stunned by this coming out today. I, I received no indication this was even on the Biden's agenda. He's dealing with so much stuff right now. 
and so much resistance to everything. Now you've got midterms coming up, so who knows how much of this is political? Doesn't matter right now. The fact is it happened and it's a significant step, not only for the people sitting in jail for minor cannabis possession while the industry makes $30 billion a year in sales and we're all in it, um, that's significant enough. But from a business perspective, an industry perspective, I do think this is significant. It may not lead to immediate change. I mean, we have stock prices going up, as you mentioned, uh, whether that lasts or not, we don't know. We've seen this before with announcements, right? They could all be back down where they were before in five days. However, I truly do think this is big in the sense that the industry needed a spark. It needed a catalyst. It needed investment money. It needs capital. And if this is the trigger for people who read tea leaves into where marijuana is going and they say, you know what, we got to get in now because clearly things are going to change, whether it's in two months or two years, this could help help with some of the issues the industry is facing today. It's not a panacea. It might not be overnight, except for stock prices right now. Uh, but I do think this is significant. That's great. And, and I've got two things I want to uh, go back to you with, Chris. The first one, I'm glad you say this about the stock markets. When it comes to the financial markets, I'm very conservative by nature. It's the way my father raised me. I wish he hadn't, but he did, and that's who I am. Nevertheless, you know, you begin to think, uh, the word that comes to my mind is fickle, right? Uh, people see good news and they go running in and they say, this is going to be great. And this is good news. And I, and I, I appreciate that. But as you point out, my concern is three days from now, they'll hear something they don't like and they'll just as quickly go back in and wipe out the gains or, you know, bring the price back down. And I just don't think it's, that it's a, a product, a commodity, whatever we want to call it, that the general public truly understands, right? We, even those of us who aren't very bright know about corn. Corn is corn. It grows. If it's sunny, if there's good weather, there's going to be good corn and all. But most people don't know about marijuana and they're, you know, taking their money and they're investing in these companies that go up down. And Rob and I just in the last couple of weeks have been talking about how some of these companies are on life support practically. And, you know, even if all of a sudden you get good news and people come flooding in, Who's 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 the benefactor of that money? Where is it going? And are the, the companies that getting the money, is it going to be enough for them to survive as soon as we have another downturn, if that's what happens? I, I, I totally share that. And I think having looked at cannabis stocks in the market since they've been in existence, they don't move really on anything that's substantial a lot of the time, not with every company, not in every case. But yes, there's an announcement like this and they all rock and they come down and there's something that isn't a big deal negatively and they all drop like totally get it. They don't move a lot of times on fundamentals. However, how I'm seeing it is, look, the industry needs to go through some pain right now, right? I think companies built business models or revised their business models in 2020 when everything was surging and they thought that was the new baseline and that was the new benchmark and everything was going to just go 50% up from there. And I think is what you're finding is a lot of companies are suffering unless you're only focused in a new market that just launched or is still in rapid growth phase. But there needs to be a culling. And I hate to say that, but there, there were bad business practices. There were companies that were only existing uh, or growing based on investment money and not the business strategy supporting that. And so when that investment money dries up and I'm not I'm not necessarily just talking about public companies, I'm talking about most of the a lot of the private companies that um, just didn't have, they did not have the structure that could compete when things got bad. And, and every industry goes through bad times, right? And every, everyone learns lessons along the way. And some survive those lessons and some don't. I think clearly oversupply, uh, wholesale price drops, like if you didn't see that coming down 
the pipe a couple years ago, you know, and uh, you were planning your business again in 2020, uh, not realizing that things could change. You you might be suffering more than others. And even good business, well-run businesses um, are, are experiencing challenges for sure. So I, I guess my bigger point is there there needs to be some kind of shift in the industry. It's not always going to grow at 20, 40, 50% tripling every year, right? And there's going to be more competition and um, and there's going to be price drops and it's going to be the low cost producers that can survive. You know, so I think that the investment money I'm, I'm talking about too is, you know, the angel investor, the, the family office, the few that are involved, right? All the other investment money that are not just retail investors, but if those people are reading the tea leaves and are making investments in companies that are starting up and companies that are just trying to survive, right? Or right-size their business and in companies that do want to expand, all that money's dried up. So if we can get some relief there, purely based on optimism of where this is all going, based on what happened with Biden today, which I think there's warranted optimism that, that things could change sooner rather than later. And I'm not going to peg sooner as a month or two or, or two years, but when you start seeing signs that things might finally be changing, like you don't want to get in after it changes. So maybe this is enough to convince certain people to put some money into the industry. Um, not a panacea. It's not going to fix the fundamental problems in the industry. But look, we need some relief right now. We need some happy news. We need some hope. <laughs> and this maybe this is a step in that direction. So, Chris, you, you bring up a lot of good points. We've covered a lot of this extensively in, in previous you know broadcasts. Where again, we're we're very much of the same sentiment that you are that a lot of this um, unbridled enthusiasm that existed in 2017-18 was largely um, you know based on ether. You know, it was uh, it, it was blue sky uh, sentiment rather than fundamentals. And so if you weren't looking at Canada in 2018 or early 2019 when the, the shine came off that one and, and watched price compression happen massively both as a commodity buying cannabis but also just the, uh, the belief that you know the expansion out of Canada that everyone was predicting would happen didn't materialize and you realize you were stuck with a TAM of 30 million people. Uh, it, you know, if you couldn't take that lesson and apply it to the United States, you had issues right away. But more importantly, then we saw 2020 COVID hit. Canvas became, you know, was given the designation as, uh, as uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Necessity or uh, necessary. Central business, yep. Exactly, central business. Thank you. And when it was, all the cracks that we saw that were happening in the industry at the time, you know, at the end of 2019, Already, we were watching, you know, uh, commodities prices, you know, massive price compression. We were watching uh, investor sentiment go away, and all of a sudden, there's this like renewed lease on life because of uh, of COVID and government money just flowing at people and people like having nothing else to spend discretionary spending on. So, you know, there's this this period of, of euphoria again, and then obviously with the change of the Senate composition. Anyone that wasn't in the industry thought that that would be the uh, the catalyst to, to see federal change. I don't think you thought that. We certainly didn't think that. But um, but you know that was a period in 2020-21 that you know people should have been shoring up their balance sheets. They should have been doing whatever they could to make sure that you know that, that they were prepared to weather the next storm. And you know as well as I do that most companies didn't you know didn't heed their own warnings. The question I have for you related to that you know because you made so many good points is. Do you think even the companies that are relatively solvent at this point don't have massive issues still just through counterparty risk of you know still having to transact business with companies that are you know borderline insolvent at this point? So even if they're running a great business and operationally they're sound, 
if all of a sudden six of their best customers go away because they fail, uh, is, is the domino effect still you know enough to concern you? And you deal with all these companies as clients. So just you know thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. Is that just being a financially stable, operationally stable company that saw where the puck was going, that uh, structured the business correctly, is not enough to blunt all the pain right now. I still think those businesses will get through it. Uh, because they were they were smart enough to structure that way, and they'll be smart enough to figure out a way around this. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure this this type of what we're seeing now ripples to everyone. Uh, like you said, you could have done everything right, but if your client suffers and goes out of business, you know, uh, what do you do if that represents 50% of your revenues? So uh, you you have to restructure, repivot, uh, and come up with a different strategy, right? And so it's not like for me, it's not a one and done, set it and forget it. Um, you know, you've got to now adapt to this situation too, and use those smarts that got you in a, a stable position in the first place. Um, I wouldn't worry as much about those companies going out of business, uh, but layoffs, downsizing, reorganization, sure. I mean, you know, we we were a very strong company, really strong company, uh, with a a war chest that we were going to use for acquisitions and never took a dime from investors, and then COVID hit, and it didn't matter. We couldn't host a show. You know, our revenues dropped 90 some percent and uh, uh, but we got through it. So I, I do think I do think they can find a way through it, but it doesn't mean there's not going to be any pain for sure, because as you aptly point out, this stuff ripples to everyone. It does. And that's a great answer. Circling back for a minute, though, to uh, what the news from today and, and where this might lead the industry. The president has basically said the right things about cannabis, but he himself is not a fan of cannabis. He's made it clear that people working in his administration can have no connection to cannabis. And in fact, an individual who I know, who I just saw recently, who was in town visiting, uh, indicated that he's getting ready to join the Biden administration. And one of the things he had to do was declare that he had had no contact with marijuana for at least the last year and maybe more. And, you know, look, everybody, every president's entitled to do what they want. But to me, that doesn't quite send re- releasing prisoners who were convicted for BS reasons for not doing really, as we would all agree, anything wrong is a nice move. But it's kind of like a, nobody's going to criticize him for that, right? I mean, what are the Republicans going to come in and say these guys are all felons? Probably half of them being released are Republicans. But, you know, it, 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 that's the issue that we run into. And, and what I really want to know is, is this just a political move for that reason? Or is Biden really prepared to take that step, even though he personally doesn't seem to share uh, in the philosophy that we all agree in, uh, in, in terms of, you know, open and available marijuana and markets and all that? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, my dad was a longtime White House correspondent for U.S. News World Report, and we were just talking this afternoon about this. And, um, you know, it's it, it, we were the the question we both were discussing, you know, he covered a lot of presidents and it's like, how much of this is, hey, maybe his views have actually changed. A lot of people's views have changed. So we can't just say, no, no, no. I mean, how many people have you met in the cannabis industry who were anti-cannabis or ambivalent about it before? I've met a lot who who changed their mind, right? And including politicians, as we all know, again, that have left office and then are the, the you know, John Boehner's of the world that are all of a sudden chilling for cannabis, you know, for whatever reason, it's not unheard of for people to shift their views. However, yeah, you could absolutely say this is all for political theater. You know, we've got midterms coming up. We've got a lot of issues. He's unpopular right now. 
I don't care the reason right now, to tell you the truth, as long as something's going to be done about it. And I think what stood out for me is I made a LinkedIn post and I just saw something and someone said, well, do you work for Biden? Like, because I was lauding this and it said, you know, he didn't, he didn't say unequivocally or forcefully anything about cannabis. He didn't take any actions. Well, guess what? Releasing prisoners, federal prisoners in jail uh, for minor marijuana possession is an action that is significant to those people and a lot of people who are in the industry and a lot of people who have been waiting for these wrongs to be righted. So it's absolutely a tangible ac action that he just took. But what's encouraging when I look at going forward, and I don't want to overhype this. I could be wrong and I'll admit that. Does this just flutter to the background now and nothing comes of it? Maybe. Maybe you put your money there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, you know, criticize you for doing that. But the fact that he is saying the laws make no sense. That's what he says. It says it makes no sense that marijuana, cannabis is a schedule one drug with all these hardcore drugs, right? That makes no sense. So, you know, I don't even know what the path forward would be for rescheduling uh, to, to every detail and how that would have to occur. Haven't looked into that for a while. But, you know, if he's directing officials to look into this again and is basically saying it should be rescheduled, which is what I took from this development, I do think that that, that is um, significant uh, for the president of the United States. Now, what type of opposition, you know, could he really get anything done? I don't know. But when we talk about how change is going to happen, it's never one thing. It's all these things. It's the bill getting out of committee. It's one house out taking it up for debate. It's one side of the house, you know, passing it. We've seen how this plays out. There's maybe 15, 20 steps that need to happen. This is a, a, an important one. So let's actually look at that for one second, Chris, because obviously, you know, leaving schedule one is one thing, but going down to schedule two, schedule three, schedule four, we've talked about this for years as part of the industry. That doesn't help us. You know, like going down to Schedule 3 and all of a sudden the FDA goes, okay, we're going to pick this up now. Now we have to go through double-blind placebo studies. We've got to go through any, you know, all the same things that forward-thinking drug development needs to do. And THC now is going to be considered a, a, a pharmaceutical ingredient. You know, then they look to, to drugs that have already been manufactured, whether it's Marinol or Dronabinol or, you know, any others that uh, have come out that have got, you know, synthetic or an analog THC variant. And who actually owns those, you know, whether it's um, GW Pharma or any other, you know, pharmaceutical company, do you think about the chain of custody issues, all the other things that go along with this, you know, all, I've heard so many people say, oh, if we could just get to Schedule 3, that we could study this thing. I go, guys, if you go to Schedule 3, the FDA picks us up and every bit of our industry is, you know, illegal again. So when, when you talk about this and, you know, I hear Biden's announcement and I, I've got hope, but the other side of me goes, does he understand the issue well enough to realize that if he goes to a Schedule 3 designation, that that's more disruptive than keeping things at Schedule 1 for you know, where we are as an industry? Well, I don't trust politicians to understand anything about any industry in a, in a meaningful way, right? So I'm not saying that they're going to understand what they're doing. When they regulate it, just like we've seen with hemp and CBD, like they don't know what the hell they're doing. What I would hope is that, you know, he didn't just come out and say, yeah, this should go that happened right now and I'm going to make it happen. He's saying, let's look into this and make it an urgent priority. Hopefully that will be taken into consideration. But I, my thinking has always been where regardless of where, where it ends up on the schedule list, it's not going to operate like it, it's just not going to operate like that because, you know, okay, so cannabis goes down to two or three and all of a sudden it's elite. Like that's not going to, we can't put it back in the bottle and the government can't just come out and say everything's illegal now. Like, there's no support for that, right? Especially with how many states legalized. 
I just, it's going to have to be a weird path forward. And I don't know what you can do in confines of the law at each schedule. And I know there's things currently in there now, but this is going to, this is a different situation. And so I don't know how it would play out, but I just, I just can't imagine a move that would, you know, the government would never be able to enforce it anyway. It's just going to shut down the thing because the FDA, now the FDA is going to spend five years researching it. And, you know, like, I just can't see that happening. I just, I really can't. I mean, they they didn't even enforce it. I mean, it's a schedule one drug now and they haven't enforced anything. They've, they've enforced 280E. I guess my point on that is that if you're enforcing 280E as a schedule one or schedule two drug and you're not allowing businesses to take standard business deductions as a result thereof, that enforcement alone is enough to essentially keep this uh, industry in the long term as an untenable industry when you think that, you know, we're still borrowing money at, uh, you know, 15% coupons you know, and that's if you don't even have to give up warrant coverage on top of that, right? So it's, you're already facing off against just really, really high interest rates. And then you couple that with the tax burden that between the two, I mean, the reason that the industry, and you brought it up earlier, we do $30 billion a year in top line sales in this industry, yet there's almost no businesses inside this industry that are profitable. And it's not because these guys aren't operating good businesses. I know a ton of great operators. I know a ton of guys that like have done absolutely everything they can within the confines of the regulations they've been given, and they still can't make it work because what they're facing off against is nearly impossible uh, when everyone's got their hand in your pocket at the municipal level, at the state level, at the federal level. And the combination of 280, because it's a Schedule One drug, and the, uh, and the um, lack of availability to decently priced capital uh, makes it nearly impossible. So, you know, yeah, we haven't enforced cannabis as a Schedule One drug, but we certainly, like, let the federal government reach into the pocket of every operator and exact as much of a toll as they possibly can. But, yeah, I th- and I think that's why this is a multi-pronged approach. It's not going to be one bill. It's not going to be one move that the president does. It's not going to be rescheduling. You know, it's not the ban- safe banking act. Like, nothing's going to fix everything, right? It's, it's, and that's why I was not happy with this bigger legalization bill by Schumer when when they were coming out against the baking bill, which I'm sure you've talked about lots, right? That that to me was, uh, I could not believe it when, when I heard that. Basically, some federal lawmakers just saying, no, we're not going to get behind banking and we encourage you not to because we need this sweeping bill to, that incorporates all these things. I didn't have a problem with the bill. There were a lot of things to like. There were a lot of controversial things. But this is how the marijuana, this is how things are going to change, right? And so to your point, yeah, I mean, yeah, the 280E is a serious concern. That's going to be tackled separately, I imagine, just like banking is being tackled separately and just like de- rescheduling might be tackled separately and the 20 other things that we've got to work through. So I don't think it's just like one prevents the other. I think they're all going to help each other, whatever movement we can get. And, uh, you know, if if this then leads to some other pardonings in other states by governors, that's just another move, right? Not a direct impact on the industry, but when you start adding all of these things up and what we've seen in the last 10 years, I mean, I didn't think we were going to have a recreational industry. When Colorado and Washington legalized, I remember thinking like, there's no way the federal government's going to let businesses crop up. I literally thought that. I was completely wrong, but I was like, there's no way, you know? And so all these things are adding up and look where we are today because that happened. Yeah, we still got serious challenges, but man, the industry has evolved and grown tremendously. We have Mason Tavert coming on in the next couple weeks to discuss exactly that. And there's no per- person better to discuss, you know, kind of what was going to happen after Colorado passed this law than, than having Mason on, who was probably the biggest catalyst to get that law passed. So you know, you're exactly right. You, know, you don't know what's going to come out of, uh, of a change in legislation. But I, I remember, you know, fighting like hell to get that Colorado law passed, only to think, you know, sort of 
all right, now what do the feds do? Like your move guys and just expecting they're going to come in and just actually smash on the industry before they let it out of the bottle. And uh, I, I was truly surprised a year later when they hadn't, when, you know, Washington and Colorado actually got this thing open and got it off the ground. And that was the first time I thought like, wow, this, this actually could be significantly bigger than, you know, kind of a cottage medicinal industry. Um, so we, we don't know. Um, so l- let me ask you the, the million dollar question that everyone at Benzinga a couple of weeks ago was, was asking and every banker I was talking to, you know, we were sort of back channeling and pressure testing it against them, which is if safe passes. And there's a lot of talk. I mean, like you, you said earlier, it's passed the, uh, the house seven times. Every time it does, I start laughing and go, yeah, good luck. It's not going through the Senate. Like, you know, stop getting excited guys. Like it's, this is, you know, the sequel, like say four, this time it's different, you know? And so, uh, I've always kind of poked fun at it, but this time I actually do think it's different. It's the first time I've ever thought that it's going to get through. I think it gets tacked on to either the Defense Authorization Act or some other must-pass piece of legislation. If it does, you know, will that have the impact that we think it's going to have? And do you think banks will really start opening up and lending? And if, if you do, do you think it's going to be the majors, the minors, the regionals? You know, how do you see this happening? Does safe pass? And what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, and you're closer to it than me, but in all my discussions with people in the industry that are the closest to this situation, the optimism now is as high as I've ever seen it for this to pass. When five months ago it was dead, right? Um, and uh, and I actually predicted um, end of last year that nothing would happen on this because of the resistance within the Democratic Party federally, right? Um, so things can change quickly as we all know. So I'm actually, based on what I'm hearing, I'm not talking to the lawmakers myself, that uh, yeah, there's a lot of optimism and that we could absolutely see something in the beginning of January towards the end of late at the, the end of this lame duck session and that uh, that would usher in another significant development. What it means, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. I think no one really knows. I think at this point, all of this is uncharted water. I think it would likely take time. I think there would be a lot of immediate impacts for the industry. I think there would be immediate impacts. Again, with the hype, with the people buying into it, investment money coming in, mainstream companies. I think that would absolutely happen right away and that that would be sustainable. That wouldn't be like, a eh, is that going to last? That would last. Um, in terms of how the banking situation would evolve and how quickly, I don't know. I imagine, you know, that their banks are banks. Like they're going to have to look into everything and, you know, see what the, 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 the impact would be in the stipulations. I absolutely believe they would get there, both midsize and, big, and, and the majors. Is it within six months? Is it within two years? I don't know. That's all great. And and I, I love hearing that kind of stuff. And, you know, Rob alluded before, you know, on this show, we're, we're usually of the, you know, I'll believe it when I see it frame of mind. But nevertheless, we have to look at it. So our, the second story that we were going to talk about today is very relevant to this because there's a growing number of Republicans who, are, you know, are part of the uh, – the the House Caucus or whatever they call themselves, and they're now beginning to push the idea that there's no place for legalization of marijuana in this country, um, that, you know, it, it goes against everything, that, you know, they're not saying it's part of the woke culture, certainly, but they're, you know, they're suggesting that it's, it's evil, it's bad, it's going to ruin children. In fact, it's reefer madness all over again, right? We haven't really moved on from that movie ever, but what we've seen 
is that there are people, some of us sit there and laugh at this when they say these things, but there's enough people out there who follow these politicians and who support these politicians. And, you know, the question becomes, do the Republicans, if they can, and I say that because the numbers show that they don't have the support even of their own people to to fight that kind of fight, but if they think that that's what the right wing wants, will they, will they fight it and will they have an ability to get in and impact it? And if they do, will that lead to negotiations where we'll all say, uh, that's... Don't if you put if you give them that, then the whole bill gets ruined kind of thing. Right. It, so I'm, I'm worried about the fact that we still have people out there who are peddling these ideas that causes schizophrenia. It does this. I mean, we'll talk about that with Mason in our show next time, too. But, you know, basically they're peddling the, 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 the old tropes of fear and all the terrible things that marijuana is going to do to you, you know, in the name of parental choice and family rights and all this other nonsense that they you know yell and scream about. But, but when, you know, when they want to touch this, they're affecting the lives of other people. And to me, it, it crosses a line. But I don't know what it's going to do in D.C. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I'm surprised. If you asked me four or five years ago, uh, I would have a different take. It, there was a period where medical and recreational legalization was controversial in states. And, you know, think back if you were close to it, like Arizona, when they, you know, were trying to legalize medical even, and there was the sheriff coming out and there was key politicians, you know, saying, fighting it and, and going to court. And uh, that went away for a while, most or more or less, not everywhere. But, you know, it was almost like people just threw their hands up. And there were a couple of groups that, you know, like just against marijuana, and they never gained traction, but states kept winning at the ballot. Legislatures started legalizing. And that resistance to me started to fade significantly. And then in more recent times, you've had challenges to voter approved laws, like in South Dakota and Mississippi, which to me was surprising that not only were they challenged aggressively, but that they won. They won on stupid things like a technicality in 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 the how the, you know, I won't get into the details, but they were technicalities, you know. And so I'm now more fearful that there could be successful efforts to stall the industry because we've seen that happen recently. And, uh, you know, what that means from a larger point of view, I don't know yet. I mean, my bigger fear is that that the anti-marijuana forces in government and then federally will tie it to crime and say, look, a lot of big cities are, are having crime waves and it's all over the news. Crime is way up, um, unprovoked, you know, attacks. Uh, and, and a lot of them are in big democratic cities, right? Uh, and so, you know, some of them are mentally ill people that have schizophrenia or whatever. And I, I just worry that they will make a link to that and saying, look, all this stuff is happening in these legal states. And we can sit here and laugh and say that's silly, but look, it's what resonates with people. And so what resonates with people who might believe that is crime. Uh, that's on everyone's, a lot of people's mind right now. So, you know, I think it's, it's hard to say the kids are, are being you know, screwed up by this or whatever. But if you're like, oh, the reason there's crime is because the, the recreational cannabis, some people will just wholesale buy that. Now, will it have any effect? I don't, I don't know. I mean, in poll after poll, we still see, you know, marijuana is leading by a wide margin and lots of Republican support, at least medical and also increasingly recreational. So uh, that ship might have sailed, but look, the Senate wouldn't even take it up. I, the thing is, I don't know where the tipping point is, but you have all these red states that have legalized medical and you have red states that are starting to legalize recreational and you have public support in favor of it on both sides of the aisle. 
across the country, but we couldn't even get a bill debated in the Senate for many years. And so the, the few people who hold power can do things that you would never believe they could do. So who knows? Who knows where that resistance will come from and how it'll uh, morph. But, you know, there is definitely resistance and how that shapes laws, how that shapes where we go, I think is a bigger concern than it was for me a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I don't think that uh, canvas from a, um, uh, a partisan perspective is the lightning rod that it was, you know, 15 years ago. So, you know, when you think that it's no longer the third rail of politics to discuss legalizing cannabis, that's why I was so surprised that this Republican study committee came out uh, with their, you know, I think they called it their, um, their family policy agenda. It's 156 members of Congress on the Republican side that came out against this. And it's the first time I've seen a, a large coalition where it's not, you know, knuckleheads like Kevin Sabet, you know, coming out and saying, OK, we're, we're going to try to, you know, stuff cannabis back in the, uh, in the bottle. This is actually a large group saying we've come up with what our policy is going to be for the coming year. And as part of that policy is an anti-cannabis stance. It, it just seems um, very strange as to you know why now, especially going into the midterms, where you know you think there's a great deal of voter sentiment in favor of legalization. We're watching. I mean, six states that do have it on the ballot, it's going to pass in every state. I mean, you get cannabis on the ballot, it passes. We all know that. Uh, you might be able to slow it down afterwards, the way Christine Nome did in South Dakota, uh, the way Tate Reeves did in Mississippi. But you're not going to be able to slow it down, you know, across the board uh, in terms of just incremental change. So what is it that they think is a is a, a positive to say we're coming out against this, knowing that this is now actually going against the sentiment of you know even their own base on the Republican side, and that's that's where I'm looking at going. What am I missing here? Because usually usually I know what's going to happen. Like you know I know when a bill goes to Mike Crapo's desk when he was you know a committee head that it wasn't getting out of committee. I knew when it was, you know if it went to a Lindsey Graham's desk, it wasn't leaving Lindsey Graham's desk. Like Mitch McConnell was very clear about what bills he wanted to put on the floor and which ones he didn't. And if he didn't want to put on the floor, he didn't have to be the bad guy. He just killed in committee. You, you know that. I know that. You know, anyone who follows politics knows it. But, you know, if, it, if, if the, the voters uh, are making a decision at the ballot box, canvas passes. So why now going into a critical, like an absolutely mission-critical midterm race for both sides to come out against cannabis with 34 days to go before the midterms? I think that's a great point. And I don't know why they would do that either unless they feel people have been misled and they think that um, if they attach it to something that's a hot button issue like crime, you know, people will change their uh, opinions. But no, I don't I don't know why you do that. I don't know why politicians do anything at the time. But yeah, it would make no sense if your base supports that um, to, in many cases, a high degree. You would think that they would be in favor of it. So I don't know what they have to gain from it, but but they they keep trying. And then, as you said, in both you know South Dakota and Mississippi, it's <laughs> ultimately it just slowed it down a little bit. Yeah. So I know you got to go, Chris. You, you've been super generous with your time, uh, Larry. Do you have one more question for Chris before we uh, before we let him get back to fielding a thousand calls he's going to have today? Uh, yeah, give us a thirty seconds on what you got planned for Las Vegas this year. Yeah, we have MJ BizCon uh, coming back to Vegas. Uh, Thirty-five thousand people, you know, in the industry, people looking to get in the industry, people curious about it. Uh, we've got fourteen hundred exhibitors from you know across the U.S. and Canada, and we have exhibitors from other countries. We get a lot of we get dozens of other countries represented. Uh, but honestly, this year we've got we're kind of loosening our, our ties a little bit and we've got a, a outdoor area with food trucks and 
uh, DJ booths. It's really about business and that's what we're known for. And that's what we focused on, but we're trying to also bring in a little bit more of the fun to the show itself. Um, you know, we got, we got a forum on psychedelics. Of course, there's a lot of overlap with cannabis and people are wondering where that industry is going and how to, how to make a, uh, you know, path forward there. And, uh, so I don't know, we're just, we're excited. This will be the biggest MJ BizCon we've had. And we've spent a lot of time over the last year really trying to enhance it and, uh, you know, bring more value. Last year was just about getting back after COVID and holding a damn show. Uh, but this year we spent the, the whole 12 months figuring out how to make it better. So yeah, hope, hopefully uh, we'll see some listeners there. I'm going to tell you the only issue I ever have is that long line to register. <laughs> yeah. We've been working on that. We had, we got that down. We got that real down very well down one year, but yeah, usually there's, we get a ton of walk-ups, you know, on the day it starts and no matter how much we prepare, sometimes it, it's uh, a flood of people just buying their, their conference ticket there. Well, we'll be there, and for all our listeners out there, register early. Uh, make sure you skip that line. Get your credentials, you know, as soon as you can. And uh, this one should be a lot of fun. So, Chris, thank you for uh, for taking your time with us today. We sincerely appreciate it. Your perspective is always appreciated, uh, and it was, you know, very very interesting. So, uh, excited to see you at the end of the year in Vegas. Hey, thanks, guys, and love hearing your perspective too. I never never claim to be right on things, so I, I like to. Uh, I like to get everyone's thoughts and, and then we see in cannabis, you can't be too optimistic about what you're predicting because you could be proven wrong really quickly. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Well, thank you to Chris Walsh uh, from MJ Biz for spending some time with us today and going over going over all this stuff. These are great issues. He is uh, does bring a very unique perspective to these issues and uh uh, with with MJ Biz right around the corner, I'm sure he's a busy man, and for him to give us a few minutes was very nice. Uh, in fact, so busy that uh, he may have forgotten to let you guys know out there that MJ Biz is November 15th through the 18th in Las Vegas at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Get your tickets now if you're going to go, and if you have at all any interest in this industry, uh, this is the event that you kind of have to be at. Um, otherwise, you miss the great opportunities to meet people, to hear what's going on, and to really have any chance uh, for advancement. So, um, and if you're out there, please come by and watch us as we uh, tape our show out there. And uh, we'd love to meet anyone who's listening to our show and has any stories they want to share or uh, any good stuff like that. So that was great, Rob. Uh, thank you for facilitating that with Chris. That's, uh, that's great to have him on the show. Yeah, very cool. And speaking of events that you, know, you had to be at at a given time, I think on October 10th, 1968, the event you had to be at was probably um, The Matrix in San Francisco. Uh, I think you're right. And uh, as, as wonderful as it was to talk with Chris and, and go over all this marijuana stuff, which is really the bread and butter of, of everything we're doing, well, for God's sakes, we've got to talk about The Grateful Dead, too. So we'll dive back in to The Matrix from 52 years ago today. Excuse me, 54 years ago. My, that's why I'm a lawyer and not a mathematician. But in the in the fall of that year, Pigpen and Bobby had been uh, temporarily fired or uh, released from the band for any one of a number of reasons. There were some musical issues with Pigpen. Bobby, they said, had some stubborn pride. But there was also some talk that they were getting lazy about going to practice. So when they decided to play, uh, it was Mickey and the Heartbeats. And it was uh, the two drummers, Jerry and Phil. And off they went. And uh, for about a seven seven different nights in October of 68, they played at the Matrix. 
with uh, some some very interesting characters. Elvin Bishop sat in with them and also brought his band in for a few of the nights, although apparently October 10th was not one of them. Uh, the same with Jack Cassidy uh, from Jefferson Airplane and later Hot Tuna, uh, who also who, who did play, we know, on October 8th, uh, but there's no confirmation of him playing with them on October 10th. But it is rumored that Paul Butterfield may have also made an appearance or two. Um, however, in the archives, when digging around, the name that bounced out as the uh, sit-in musician for this show is a musician named Marvin Gardens, which already rings a bell because that's the Monopoly property. But uh, nobody can confirm his last name for sure. Uh, they just know that Marvin sat in with the band. Uh, he sang and he played harmonica, uh, which becomes very prevalent in some of these tunes we're going to hear. But the notes also uh, indicate that there was a band called Marvin Gardens at that time led uh, by a sumo woman named Carol Duke. Uh, it was an emerging gay band, one of the first bands that was going to come out in the San Francisco area with a, with a gay identity behind them. Although I don't think that that's the, uh, the group that the boys were working with that night. So we're going to go with Marvin uh, with his singing in harmonica, which is a bit of a bummer, I admit, because I thought that this was Pigpen playing the harp, but it's not. But Marvin, I think, still kills it. And uh, let's dive right into our next clip, which is, uh, and, and you're going to note a lot of these songs tonight are, are, are jams of one kind or another. Uh, this is the Rub Jam and 30 Seconds Behind the Rub. It was uh, a Lightning Hawkins tune from 1964, uh, which the Dead also played as a, called Ain't It Crazy uh, with Pigpen singing the lyrics. And it's a really funny kind of tune that, you know, they, they sing right along and, you know, you can make some double entendres with it if you want. Uh, but this version is just jamming. Uh, there's no singing, I'm assuming, because Pigpen was not there. But this is really, really great. Dan, go ahead and hit this one for us if you could. of fun you know and it, it it almost makes it sounds like it's one of those tunes where somebody showed up with an old-time uh, cassette recorder and pushed the button and just kind of held it up and and you get that music going and everything but the harmonica sound with them is so wonderful you know I, I like it with them as much as I like the saxophone when Branford and others sit in and uh, you know Pigpen did play a little harmonica from time to time but uh, apparently here this is our friend Mr. Gardens showing off his stuff and uh I, I like the, the full version of the, the, the Robber Ain't It Crazy when Pigpen's singing, but that's fun music. It is fun music. It's very traditional, old-school um, harp playing. You know, it's good blues harp playing. It's not, you know, any of the creative stuff that you see, you know, coming out of, like, today's, like, sort of John Popper or anyone else that started going into, like, triplets and other really creative things. It's just straightforward, you know, blues harp 
which is very much, you know, as you said, what Pigpen used to do as well. So it's easy to confuse, you know, that it might have been Pig instead of being <laughs> Mr. Marvin Gardens, whoever he may be. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a good sound. It's a, a cool take on a style of music the Dead played a lot of, but, you know, on some songs that I don't think, you know, too many people are familiar with. I agree. And, and uh, let's just dive into it one more really quickly here before we move on to some other Dead talk. Uh, this uh, next song from the show is called Look on Yonder's Wall. Uh, it's either by James Beale Street Clark, also known as Memphis Jimmy, or according to Deadnet, the song might be credited to a gentleman named Arthur Crudup. Uh, either way, again, it's great vocals, great harp. This, this may be Mr. Garden showing off his singing skills as well. Um, this song was only played twice by the dead. This was the last time they played it. Uh, so uh, Dan, spin it and let's hear how this one sounds. song you know if somebody walked into the show that night uh, they might very well be forgiven for thinking i thought i was going to see the grateful dead or at least uh two-thirds of the grateful dead um and and really getting some sounds that uh, we just don't hear very often on live dead stuff and i think that's uh, important to note that this is during the height of like the grateful dead's like psychedelia phase so this wasn't happening you know during a time where they were you know primarily playing as a blues band like pig had his blues tunes and, you know, we always think of, like, the, the roots of the Grateful Dead as either being, um, you know, sort of improvisation or, you know, uh, uh, blues improvisation. But this isn't, like, the era where they were doing the Americana. It wasn't the era where they were doing country. It wasn't the era. That, this is right in the middle of, like, you know, their Dark Star St. Stephen the Eleven Lovelight period. So to hear this much blues coming out, and when you talk about Elvin Bishop sitting in during this run or for part of this run, you know, there's your, your sort of classic blues guy that, that they like playing with. So... It, it, to me, it just shows off the versatility of the members of the band because when you switch genres, you know, from one genre to another and do it consistently the way that the Grateful Dead would do on most nights, you know, switching back and forth between, you know, uh, from a dark star to a mama tribe, those are completely different styles of music and uh, different styles of, like, of emphasis in your music. So, again, it's, just, it's really cool, especially on Garcia's playing, to listen to how versatile he was, you know, even at an early age. Yeah, it, it it's 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 really wonderful to hear and, and, and gives us all sorts of background that's that's excellent. A couple of other music things I think just worth noting here before we uh dive back into some more clips. Unfortunately we learned that Loretta uh, Loretta Lindley recently died, uh the coal miner's daughter, who uh you know, may have been at her peak of popularity uh, other than the, the her 
kind of re-rise after the movie came out. Uh, probably a few years before, uh, you know, many of us in our contemporaries were were, were uh, listening to music, but certainly her voice and her songs are something that many of us have heard and uh, and know a lot about. And uh, I think it speaks volumes that, you know, upon her death, the, the quote that really caught my eye came from none other than Jack White, you know, who might be on the opposite end of the spectrum from her in terms of music. And Jack said, uh, I said 20 years ago, I thought she was the greatest female singer-songwriter of the 20th century, and I still believe that. She was, she was such an incredible presence and such a brilliant genius in ways that I think only people who got to work with her might know about. And when I hear that, that's no small praise. You know, first of all, Jack White is a, you know, he's a no-nonsense rock and roll guy. He's, you know, if he gives his opinion, he means it. And think about all of the amazing female singer-songwriters that have been around uh, in the 20th century, so many of them, we could go on and on, but certainly Joni Mitchell comes to mind and um, Chrissy Hind and uh, so many. And, and yet, you know, Jack White points to Loretta Lynn. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm not a, I don't know Loretta's catalog nearly as well as a lot of other musicians that we cover, but I'm a huge fan of Jack White. I'm a huge fan of him in the Rock on Tours and the White Stripes and almost every other like iteration that he's done. Uh, and I look at that guy as, you know, probably in, in my mind, the, the most talented um, guitar player of like the new generation. No disrespect to John Mayer, but you know, I think Jack White is, is is pretty exceptional. So for him to say that, you know, that's one that the one of the reasons I love Jack is again he's really versatile in what he's able to do and what he covers. And uh, I know he's a, a student of music, so you know that's that's pretty huge praise. Uh, what I did know about her, I was a, I was a big fan of, you know, but to say she was the, the greatest, you know, of the 20th century, I don't know, that, that's that's hard for me. There's so many great ones I can think of, you know, like Joni Mitchell's hard for me to say is, you know, there's anyone better as a singer-songwriter combination. And I've got to tell you, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of Joni Mitchell's voice, the way some people are, but as far as a, uh, as far as a writer of, of songs, uh, you know, hard for me to, that's like saying someone's better than Dylan for, for guys. It's just really tough to do. But, um, but yeah, I mean, look, she'll be missed, and she was a terrific artist. I think so, and and you're absolutely right what you say about that. You know, it's it's just uh, uh, there, there's so many good people, but that's okay. You know, if that's Jack White's opinion, I respect Jack White, so I don't have any problem with him saying it. But it's ironic because one of the things you and I noted that we failed to, to talk about in last week's show uh, was that a couple of weeks ago, uh, not even a couple of weeks ago, just a few days ago, uh, actually marked the 52nd anniversary of Janis Joplin's death. And, you know, when you want to talk about, you know, female influences in rock and roll, and especially during this time that we're focusing on with this show uh, in, you know, the late 60s and, and early 70s until her death in October of 1970. And, you know, on the on the female side, and, and, you know, with all due respect to Grace Slick, you know, there may have been nobody bigger on the scene at that time than Janis Joplin. Yeah, and the date of her passing, I went back and listened to a couple of her old tunes, and you know, you listen to her play "Cry Baby" or play um, uh, "Me and Bobby McGee" or or play um, some of her other you know bigger songs during that period. There's no one that gave more. I mean, it's it's amazing. You hear those recordings; she'd be a star today if she were to come out like tomorrow. You know, there's no way you could ignore just how powerful that voice was. Like, I, I, I am a huge fan of Janice. I've always been a huge fan of Janice. And uh, and she did something for you know for blues playing and for uh, the the marriage of sort of the psychedelic San Francisco sound to blues that uh, I don't think anyone else put their mark on it and just, you know definitely we lost her way 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 too young uh, and that was you know right on the heels of Jimmy's passing as well so losing Hendrix and Joplin within weeks of each other I think it was two weeks apart you know what what a 
you know, you talk about the day the music died. You know, that was certainly a time where, um, you know, three or four great ones were lost back to back. It's true, you know, and we can only wonder what it would have meant for rock and roll if, if any of them or all of them had, you know, survived and, uh, you know, been able to, you know, to continue to make an impact and uh, and where things would have gone. But, yeah, Janice was, was, a, was a talent with a unique voice. If you walk in, when you walked into somebody's dorm room and they were playing Big Brother and the Holding Company, you knew it right away because, you know, you'd hear Janice's voice and that's that, that just was so so much and so but so beautiful and and i love you know the bobby mcgee and the stories about when they were on the, the the canadian train trip how she sat with bobby and jerry and you know really kind of worked out the way she was going to sing it and present it and you know she was and her relationship with pig pen is well known and talked about you know she was this, she was a, a a real part of the dead family and, and you know um certainly at the time of her passing it was mourned by the dead family and we know that that's what led to such a beautiful tune like bird song so Certainly miss uh, Janice and um, worth noting that it's been 52 years, which is kind of scary. One last note I just want to throw in here really fast because it, for me, it's like Christmas. Yesterday, I got my uh, new box set of In and Out of the Garden and have already been listening to it nonstop. And it's just absolutely amazing. I knew the 83 shows that I were at were going to be great. I just hadn't heard them in a long time that clearly. So I had to go back and listen to those first. But the 81 and 82 stuff is amazing, too. They were they were just really playing well at that time. It's a venue that they love to play at. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I get that you can download everything off of uh, uh, archive or re-listen or any of that stuff. And it's all there. But, you know, the, the time and the effort they put into this, to the artwork that goes in with all of this is just great. You know, and I love it. I just, you know, take it out and hang it up all over my house. And th this one, the, uh, the, the book that comes with it has... Uh, has postcards that you can tear out and send to people. It has stickers you can peel off and then another page where you can peel to push the stickers on. It's like a tripper's delight, you know? I mean, it's just great. You know, drop a couple of doses, put on, uh, uh, I think it's a total of 17 discs and you can really have a weekend for yourself. But, um, it, you know, I love it when they do releases of shows that I was at and these shows were absolutely fantastic. So, there's anyone out there and, and they hasn't sold out, which just amazes me that it's still for sale. If you're looking to drop money on Grateful Dead music, this is where to do it. Uh, way to rub it in again that you were uh, seeing the garden shows five years before I got to you, Larry. Uh, you know, I look back at those garden shows and wish I'd caught the 83 and the 84 runs. So, uh, you know, nice that you were there and definitely some great music. So a little bit jealous and, uh, you know, applaud the Grateful Dead for continuing to put out these great box sets. You know, I don't think we've seen the last one. And it's just amazing that they're still doing it. And by the way, even more amazingly, they're still doing it on CD, where I'm you know, thinking, like, I haven't owned a CD player in years, but obviously there's enough guys out there that still love the medium and uh, and look forward to box sets from their favorite artists. So, you know, for, for that side of it, I mean, I, I almost thought about getting a CD player just so I could go back and get all the remastered discs and all the remastered music. But... Um, you know, and I know you're a huge fan of all the liner notes and of all the explanations and everything else that goes along with the box set. It's not just the music, it's the, uh, it's the package. So, you know, if you're looking for that great Christmas gift or a great birthday gift for friends, uh, we're always a huge fan of sending box sets or, you know, not, for that matter, receiving box sets. So, uh, so have at it. You don't have to ask. If you know somebody who likes the Grateful Dead, you don't have, will they like it? Yes, they will like it. They'll love you. It's, it's, it's absolutely tremendous, and I recommend it to anybody because it was an important part of their, their career. And 
you know, we, we've never really taken the time to focus on St. Stephen and maybe we'll do that one day and, and have a show where we focus on that tune and, and what it really meant to the band and what it really meant to the fans and, you know, what was going on in their mind in terms of how they would play it and stop and play it and stop and then play it one last time. And then, I mean, stop, they, they still played 12 more years after that, but it, for whatever reason, I, I know every time I walk, every time I walked into the garden, there's someone I'd be with, that would be like, dude, do you think you can play St. Stephen tonight? Like, it's the garden. It's the garden. You're like, look, man, like just because they did it once, you know, don't think it's going to happen again. I think they probably played 50 plus garden shows after the last time they played it. So, yeah, definitely a unique treat. And I'm sorry I never got to see uh, the Grateful Dead play a St. Stephen. I've certainly seen quite a few other ones since then, but never, never uh, one where Garcia played it. You know, there's a lot of songs we're talking about tonight that, that I never got to hear Garcia play either, including the seven. So maybe we uh, maybe we talk about that one for a quick second. Uh, yeah, the, this is, quite frankly, this was the tune uh, that sold me on this show. I have to admit, I had never heard of the seven before. I had never heard of it as a, as a, uh, a tune that they played or, or very much about it at all. Um, and it, it's like the 11, it's, it's, its name is uh, uh, indicative of its time signature. The Dead only played it four times, uh, all in the late 1960s. I think I saw that Phil picked it up once and maybe Dead & Co. picked it up once. But it, it, it's very similar to the 11, that it's primarily, you know, an instrumental piece. And I'm wondering if it, it, this wasn't, you know, originally a test vehicle for what eventually did become the 11, you know, which was really, you know, in my mind, the highlight of that whole Dark Star St. Stephen, the 11, Love Light, Sweet, I, the, the 11 to me is always the part I get the most excited about. And, and of course, because deadheads do this kind of thing, one dead columnist pointed out that the song may have been written because during this period of time, Tom Constantin had joined them. So they actually had seven members in the band, assuming that Pigpen and Bobby came back in their good graces. But uh, this is a uh, this is just a really, really unique tune. Um, Dan, go ahead and let's let everybody listen to this one. seven and what do you think is some of that little you know jamming we were hearing there that that could very well be the 11 if it was in the 11's time signature yeah for sure i mean it's got so many similarities to the 11 which is i think what makes it cool and you know if you think about the 11 the way it's played you know it's uh it, it's split up into a four four three right so there's already a seven within the 11 in there which means that you know it's it, like this is during a period where they're really trying to mess around with really funky time signatures that are really complicated and difficult to do and, you know, for anyone that's played music or understands, you know, how to read music, you understand how complicated it is to take, you know, uh, uh, four beats and, and turn it into, uh, you know, 11 during that, you know, sort of one, two, three, four. And so, you know, 
to do a seven uh, four time or do eleven four time. It's uh, it's tricky stuff, and it requires you know really like mental gymnastics on how to play your instruments. It's not usually split up into seven and four. It's split up into like four and two, and then three and two, you know, type thing. So it's it's complicated um, and, and really really unique. So I, I love hearing it. I love hearing the experimentation. Yeah, and and you know when you talk about that, I think that what you know people need to stop and consider is that during this period of time it was experimentation but you know these guys again you know had the reputation of being hippies you know lsd takers um and, and yet they were playing music that you know in its technical nature uh stripping away you know the 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 veneer of of lsd and, and all of that that they get this was just really complex complicated music and if you think about what was all going on in their brains at that time, the fact that they could keep it all together uh, and, and play it, I think, is is, is absolutely impressive. And uh, in a minute on our way out, we have another jam, this one uh, from the 11, which is just another uh, jam. Uh, Jerry does not get into the, the lyrics. He doesn't have Bobby there to sing them with him. Um, so I'm assuming uh, that's why. But, but you know, it, it, again, it's just indicative of of the, the, the level, the talent that these guys brought to the table that, that sometimes get lost because everybody was just having such a good time tripping and, and hanging out and enjoying it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's definitely true. So really, um, really unique show you picked out today, Larry. It's, uh, it's so much different than a lot of the stuff that we listen to on here. And so sometimes, you know, we, we hit you guys with, uh, with really, you know, shows that you'd expect to hear from a certain era. And sometimes we try to find ones that just are much, much different. And a couple times recently, we've tried to pick out some of the uh, the more outlandish ones that don't follow patterns that you expect them to see. Whether it was the one we just did from um, you know the break going into uh, to 1975, or you know this one from the Matrix in '68. But um, but there are times that you know, if you pour through the catalog long enough, you'll find things you're like, wow, I didn't even know that one existed, or you know I, I didn't realize that they were playing this tune or playing it this way or playing it without Bobby and playing without Pig. So it's uh, cool stuff that you found uh, the show for us to listen to. And, you know, a lot of fun on such a historic cannabis day as today to, to go through it. You know, thinking back that a year before this, literally almost exactly a year before this, the Grateful Dead were dealing with their bust on 710 Ashbury. And we're holding a press conference, you know, this week, 55 years ago to, uh, to deal with, you know, being busted smoking weed. So, you know, quite, a, quite an evolution of this band, quite an evolution of this plant. And uh, we always seem to try to find a way to tie the two together. We do. And you're absolutely right about that. It's, it's a great connection and uh, a lot of fun to talk about, but, you know, frustrating at the same time, because the questions that, you know, if you, if you go back and you listen to the press conference and you hear Danny Rifkin's statement and what they throw in, the questions that he's asking are the same questions many of us are asking today. How is it that something that's so universally known to be positive and beneficial is something that those in law enforcement choose to enforce? And when they choose to enforce it, why is it that they choose to enforce it against, you know, the people that kind of, you know, give the image of promoting the use, the, the hippies and the musicians and the people like that? And it's, it, the questions are just as relevant today as they are then. You know, what, what Biden is doing today, I think, maybe represents the ultimate answer to that, right? Because the, the dead were just busted for possession. Nobody said they were dealing. Nobody said they were doing anything else. And you know, now, that, of course, uh, that was... California law that they were busted under, but even under California law today, they would be fine with possession. So, um, you know, it, it is significant that we're beginning to see those changes. 
But by the same time, we have to remain vigilant because law enforcement is law enforcement. And we already talked about that. You know, if they can bust somebody famous because they got weed, they'll bust them and worry about the consequences later. Yep, that's the reality. And uh, we will see. We'll see over the next couple of years whether, you know, we've seen such a major change happen today that the days of uh, getting busted for smiling on a cloudy day are, uh, are behind us. I sure hope they are, and I sure hope that all those that are sitting in federal prison right now for a nonviolent cannabis offense are, are celebrating in their cells, knowing that this is uh, hopefully the end of a nightmare they've been living through for a long time. And may all the governors in, in the different states uh, take notice of what was done today and, and do the same thing. And you know, before we leave, shout out to groups like Last Prisoner Project that have been fighting for this for a long time, and for all the people at you know Students for Sensible Drug Policy and the Marijuana Policy Project and uh, Normal and every other group that for the last 50-plus years uh, has been fighting for um, cannabis to either be legalized or decriminalized, but more important for those of us that weren't so lucky that you know you got popped somewhere along the way, that you got a chance to live your life again and get out and get out with your dignity intact and get out without a criminal record to follow you for the rest of your life. So may this be you know the first step of a, of a real change in national policy to allow people to use cannabis without fear of reprisal that follows them around for the rest of their life. So if nothing else, let's celebrate that today. That's a great point. And, and, and we can't we can't lose sight of that because, you know, and George and MJ Biz taught me this. Uh, uh, Chris and MJ Biz taught me this way, way back, you know, in 2013, that every moment that we sit here and we now benefit financially or otherwise from the ability to transact business in this industry, we have to stop for a minute and take note and consider the folks who were the forebears of this industry, uh, who didn't have the luxuries that we have in terms of government basically staying the hell out of their business and instead ruining them financially, throwing them in jail, ruining their lives. And the fact that, that Biden did this, even if he does nothing more, we can all continue to survive as a, as a schedule one. We've done it all this time and we'll, we'll do it going forward but to give these people the opportunity to no longer have to be in prison or to have a conviction expunged uh, because it was based on possession crimes of marijuana, crimes that we all know are not dangerous, uh, but the government told us for years were. And, and, and that's the, the, the most important thing, I think, today. Forget about the money. Forget about the profits. Forget about what this is going to do for the industry. It's a celebration that people who shouldn't be in jail are getting out of jail and that somebody at the very, very top of our governmental system uh, not only recognized it, but had the balls to say it and do something about it. So, you know, uh, credit to President Biden for doing that. And and congratulations to anyone who, who is uh, positively impacted by that. Um, but I think that's it for our show today, Rob. Any last thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, before I go, that's a great segue to say that we are going to have Mason Tavert on our show. I think next week, uh, no better person to discuss this and discuss, you know, the uh, the implications of, of those who have been fighting for uh, for changes in drug policy more than Mason. Uh, nobody that's listening to this show is going to want to miss that one. Uh, if, if you're wondering how Colorado legalized cannabis uh, on a uh, adult use level, you know, you've got one person to look to, and that's Mason Divert. You know, there, there's others that were standing alongside him that are helping him along, but nobody, literally nobody in this country made a bigger impact on the legalization of cannabis at an adult use level than Mason has. And uh, the fact that he's going to come on and talk to us about it and really talk about what today's announcement means uh, going forward from his perspective. Uh, don't miss that episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm so excited to have him as a guest on the show. Uh, the same way I'm so excited to have Chris Walsh as a guest on our show. So with that, uh, signing off from Southern California, this is Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. 
Thanks, Rob. Yeah, Mason is amazing. And, and, and besides his impact, uh, I first got to know him because he's a co-author of a book that dispels every myth about marijuana out there and, and gives you footnotes. So when people say, yeah, what's your proof? You've got sources you can turn to. That book has become my constant companion. And anytime somebody wants to shoot their mouth off and say something stupid about marijuana, I now have a way to counter that. And, and, and we all have Mason to thank for that uh, and, and all the other guys who worked with him on these projects. And so it will be great to have him next week. We'll have more uh, fun, Grateful Dead stuff to talk about, as we always do. And uh, thank you very much to Chris, Wal Chris Walsh again for giving us his time today. Uh, this was really special, and uh, he was the perfect person to have as big news breaks. So to all of our listeners out there, uh, thanks for listening. Have a great week. We'll see you next time, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.